Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Big shout out to all our Patreon subscribers. You are very good people. Uh, you are the reason that this show came out weekly and often uh, more than once a week last year. And you are the people that continue to make sure that this show comes out now. And in return, you get these episodes a day early and ad-free. So if you're not a Patreon subscriber, but you've been thinking about it, now would be a good time because we're very close to that magical $5,000 per month. And if we get to that $5,000 per month, of course, what that means is we'll be able to do a brand new episode with a new guest like today's episode with Steph every week and also a catch-up episode with a previous guest like last week's Jan Fran episode or one with M. Rossiano that I have up my sleeve that I want to put out in the next couple of weeks. So that's what I'm aiming for 2021 for this show. I'd love to be doing uh, two episodes per week, one new one, one catch-up one. But to do that, we need a minimum of $5,000 in Patreon contributions per month to cover all the costs of you know, James Fosdyke's original art, podcast Mike, doing all the extra work to put the episodes together, Taylor, who does our social media. Anyway, there's a bunch of costs putting out this show. And uh, so patreon.com slash philosophy is the place to go if you want to contribute. And of course, there you can send me a message about the show and uh, suggest guests. That often happens. People will say, I thought this person would be very interesting or they might be give me some feedback on which guests they did like. So you can do all that at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash philosophy. And of course, uh, Steph's stuff, make sure that you check out everything that she's doing, all the stuff that she has already online. She mentions in this uh, chat that we have today that there's a lot of really cool projects coming up in 2021 that she can't reveal. All I will say is she did reveal them to me after we stopped recording and they are very cool. I'm not going to say what they were because that would be a terrible thing to do. Imagine that if she told me in confidence and then I just spilled it in this intro. Well, I'm not going to do that. All I'm going to say is they are things to be very excited about and her star, which was already incredibly on the rise, is just going to keep shooting into the stratosphere as far as I'm concerned. And I think after listening to this episode and hearing from this incredible brain, um, I think you're probably going to agree if you don't already. Uh, one more plug before we get to Steph. So one more plug, which is that I am finally getting back up on stage in a very limited way. Two shows only at this stage and just down the road from my house. So uh, at the Northern Rivers of New South Wales, they have a place called the Brunswick Picture House. It's a little town called Brunswick Heads. It has a population of about 1,600 people and they have an incredible picture house there that does cabaret and comedy and all sorts of uh, events. And it's a beautiful venue and they have been doing socially distanced, socially responsible shows in an area that has not really been touched by COVID, touch wood. And uh, they had a lot of their program cancelled early in January. In fact, the first 19 shows of their calendar were cancelled because the acts that were going to come up uh, could not travel because of the border closures. And because it's a theatre in my local area and because they are friends of mine and because I saw that they were trying to do something and through no fault of their own, it couldn't happen, I said, well, hey, guys, if you want me to do a couple of shows to fill some of those slots, I am happy to do it. Now, I don't have a brand new show and as people who listen to this show will know, I have very much struggled with the idea of what I would say when I came back, so I've decided to go the complete opposite way. I am doing a completely improvised stand-up show, so I will not have been on stage for over 10 months, and the first time I go on stage, I'm just going to improvise for 80 minutes and see what comes out. Now, I'm sure some stuff will come out. Who knows how rusty it'll be? Who knows how funny some of it will be? But it'll definitely be interesting, and I'm as interested as anybody to see what's inside my head and what comes out on the night. So January 25, uh, which is a Monday night, but it's the day before a public holiday. Uh, public holiday for some reason. <laughs> we might get into that uh, in this episode with Steph. And then uh, on the 30th of January as well, which is the night before my 47th birthday. So come along and have a little celebrate with me then. Of course, the shows are completely different because they are completely improvised shows. So you could even come to both if you are that way inclined. But you can find details of that on the Brunswick Picture House website. Uh, it's selling pretty quick. In fact, by the time you hear this, both shows are uh, more than half sold out already and there is limited seating. So if you do want to come along, I would recommend booking a ticket sooner rather than later. In the meantime, I hope you're well and enjoy this episode with Steph.
Hello and welcome to Velocity with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. Not a trick question, but who are you? I am Steph Tisdell. I am woman. Hear me scream. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, raw. Damn it. it. I am woman, hear me roar? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I am woman, hear me scream is a completely more disturbing version of that song for a start. <laughs> Did you just hear a woman scream? Yeah, from that song. I think it's raw. Oh, my God, that's so embarrassing. Um, yes, I'm Steph Tisdale. I am uh, a human being. Uh, you are a human being. Uh, so w- when people ask you to describe what it is that you do with yourself, Steph Tisdale, a human being, yes. what is it that you say? Um, I tell them I'm a comedian and writer, I would say. Okay, all right. Interesting. Yeah. So comedian first, right, though? Yes. 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 And But it's like I think during this we'll probably get through this chat, but I think um, my I'm starting to wander a little bit away from that. Okay. So I'm interested in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a good place to start, I think, yeah. because you're somebody that I was really fascinated to talk to, A, because I think that you're a you know, fantastic – you know, emerging comedian. I think that you've been doing brilliant stuff on the scene. But I also just think that this time has been obviously a handbrake for everybody in yep. our industry. You know, normal career trajectories, you know, they, they have been on pause for mm. 12 months. And I was speaking to somebody about it, you know, and I've talked about it a little bit on this show, which is that for me, yes, that is annoying. And of course, I would love to be out on the road doing shows and all these things. But in some ways, I've got to do all the things that I would have wanted to do already in my career. Whereas yes. for those people who were in that part of their career where suddenly things are starting to go really well for them, they're starting to sell out shows, they're appearing on TV, you know, maybe it's that time you go from that 200-seat venue to that 400 or that 400-seat venue to that 800. Yeah. That this year must have been a really tough year. And I consider you to be one of those people. There was a great amount of momentum and fire behind trajectory behind what you were doing. And yeah. then suddenly the whole world shuts down. So what has that been like for you? It's really interesting because I think it, it made me reevaluate what I was doing um, in terms of well, so many things. Um, because like, obviously I for so long wanted to be a comedian and that's, I wanted to, to reach, I had so many goals that I'd set for myself and everything. And I was achieving it. And then as soon as it all stopped, um, I just, it was like I was hit with a tiredness that I'd never let myself feel on that trajectory. And I went, hold up a second. Like, am I still loving this? But I had this kind of this question with myself of like, when I started doing comedy, the only reason why I wanted to do it was to help my people and help my community. And then all of a sudden I was kind of faced with this question of, have I made this more selfish like is this more about self-fulfillment than it is about what I originally set out to do and I kind of I think it kind of was like I was just it it was becoming too personal um too much about myself and so um I started like trying to to really get back to the grassroots of what I wanted to do started sort of looking at ways that I could develop others and and mentor and um just naturally found myself going down a kind of a different path within a couple of months, um, doing more like talks and stuff like that. And by complete accident, it's, it's weird how these things happen, but by complete accident, um, I was just looking for any way to keep some money coming in because I was just hitting that point, but not really making a lot of money. And, um, I found this site called star now, which is for actors, right? I was like, I'm kind of interested in acting. And then as soon as I thought that in my head, all of these opportunities came up. And now I'm finding, like, my year this year, for example, COVID, hopefully not ruining it, is mostly going to be full of acting and I don't have time to do comedy. Interesting. And when you say acting, comedic acting, dramatic acting, a combination of all those things, is there a specific, like, you know, style of acting that you're doing? Well, I thought like I, it's embargoed. I can't talk about the the project yeah. that I'm on, but it is absolutely not comedy acting at all. And the other thing that I was that I sort of said yes to will be comedy acting, um, but one of them is like a very deep, dark, 
kind of I guess I guess in some ways on the comic relief, but it's not a funny show. It's not actually comedy, um, which is super cool. And it's just it's just really weird how it happened because I just like I had to, I had to make this this whole plan with myself about okay, if I want to achieve you know, like if I want to start changing mindsets and opinions, what would that look like? And I recognise that part of that is going to be that I have to elevate my profile, which is all that I've been trying to do. But I also realised that this was, it had become so much about my ego because being on stage is so much about ego. Whereas if I'm doing something where the work is put out and I can work behind the scenes as well, does that make sense? Um and yeah, it's just it's just really strange because I, I have a feeling that after this year, like twenty twenty one, just because I know what's coming up, it's going to completely change how people view me and what I'm doing in my career. So it's it's actually a really cool, interesting time for me. Okay, so that's great. I'm glad I'm glad to hear firstly that it's cool and interesting this time. Yeah. When it all first shut down, are you a person who immediately then just examines and pivots? and hustles and just thinks, okay, well, what can I do during this time? Or was there a period of mourning for what had gone away? There was probably, I reckon, three or four weeks where I was just so depressed and anxious and then I just started hustling real, real hard, like just was like, all right, that's it. Any way I can make money, I'm going to make money now. I started painting to pass the time and then I, um, I just got, like, I'm obsessed with learning and I just started, like, so I would spend all day every day in front of my TV watching, like, YouTube tutorials on, like, how to, like, why people paint and what, what it's all about. And then I just got really, like, upset. I'm a very obsessive person. I got obsessed with painting. And then people were buying them, so that was actually getting me through um, the time. That's how I made some money before I started getting more corporates and stuff in. So I, like, I spent a couple of weeks feeling sorry for myself, lived off what I had, and then I was, like all right, hustle begins. And then it was just like throwing out, like planting all of those seeds and then I was making money off the paintings and by the time I'd, you know, kind of gone through that obsession, the seedlings were coming up, you know what I mean? So it was actually like I'm pretty, like, I think it's really, like I don't have a huge amount of self-esteem and I don't really know that feeling of pride. I think, you know, like I often have that, you know, idea of like, oh, why is this all happening or whatever? But that was really a time where, I feel really proud of how I handled it. So that's an interesting thing that you've just said there, which is that you you say you don't have a huge amount of self-esteem. I think that that would surprise people for a start because you come off as, you know, having good self-esteem. But Mm. secondly, that your drive is of somebody. I think sometimes people think that to have the drive and hustle that you've shown during this period of time, that you do have to have a great sense of self-esteem, but... Do you not have to? Can those two things coexist? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, like this this is what I was explaining to somebody. It's like this, right? Like I have really, I'm a very anxious person. And if most things are fucking scary, if, if I'm like, if I'm motivated by fear mostly for most things in my life and if most things are scary, like I get, I don't like answering the phone, for example, if that's scary, then fucking it's not that much of a leap to take that next step and, like, do the hard stuff. Oh, yeah, right. Like, things that, yeah, if you're finding ordinary things scary, yeah. then people who don't find those ordinary things scary but find, like, you know, skydiving or yeah. you know, handling a snake or something scary, yeah, like, oh, mate, I feel like that trying to answer the phone. Exactly. I'm already used to this. This is yeah, not a big exactly. deal at all. It's like you just get so comfortable with being uncomfortable. And so if you're going to be uncomfortable anyway, may as well fucking push hard or something. But but I think, don't you reckon, like, I mean, what about you? Do you, would you say that you have good self-esteem? I know. I, that's why I was so fascinated by what you say, is that mm. I don't think I, that I have terrible self-esteem, but I mm. certainly don't think that I have a high self-esteem either. Yeah. And I hustle a lot. Like, I do a lot of things. And I'm constantly trying to examine that idea of, well, surely... Like you must have self-esteem if you think that you, you can stand on front of you know, on stage in front of people and people should give you money to hear what you have to say. Inherent in that proposition is the idea that you believe. Yeah. This, but, and yet I know me. I know what my levels of self-esteem yeah, yeah, yeah. are and I wouldn't say that they're matched to this thing that as I do as a job. So that's why I was so fascinated by that answer because I yeah. think... I recognised a lot of myself in what you were saying. Yeah. Well, but don't you think as well, like, there's this 
there's this weird like it's all about validation right like and that's that's what i mean that's why i kind of evaluated everything and went hold up a second comedy is just about my validation at this point because so talk, otherwise yeah, i would have been happy through that a little bit more like pick unpick that a little bit more so tell so, me about you know what you were feeling it's like you know i, I just I never feel right unless I'm sticking to my principles. Like I'm very staunchly principled and um, like I, I don't feel pride in anything unless I'm doing it for the right motivating factors, you know, and like, you know, but I'm also a bit of a snob like that. Like I once heard somebody say they wanted to be a comedian to be famous and I was like, that's unreal to me, you know, like the idea of, of fame for the sake of fame or whatever it is. Um, and so I was just really evaluating what what am I trying to achieve? And I thought, well, if I want to make a change for my people, which is what I care about the most, then I have to have a certain level of profile and I have to be taken in a certain way that people will listen to me or at least use what I've said to start conversations or as a conduit to people that they know who maybe have certain attitudes and then... You know, after a certain, I think because I hadn't, I, you know what it was actually probably, is that I hadn't had enough time because I was travelling every fucking day, like just always on the road. I didn't actually have any time to write new material and so it was just about validation and money making then and I was like this is not about, this is not what I was trying to do and I didn't have the time to put, um, I didn't have enough money to put money into development, but I didn't have the time to to do that either. And so it was like something needs to give. I either need to um, make more money, like I need to get this to a point where I can make more money to do the right thing, or I need to have more time to do those things, and I'm sure there's a way to do both. Um, yeah, but I, I think I just I, I became super aware of of how much I needed that feedback from the audience and how empty I felt without it and it was like oh man this is no longer about what I was meant to be doing this for this was about me and that made me need to change things okay so there's a couple of things that I really want to talk about that you've brought up you know well you've Mm. brought up a couple of times the idea of you know wanting to do this you know for your people and Mm. then you mentioned also that you you know have some core principles so can Mm. you tell us what some of those core principles are and then yeah maybe just take us on the journey of why you started doing this what what it was that you wanted to you know do for your people well it's like so i i I grew up i I recognize that i am incredibly privileged and that i am lucky enough to be in a position that i have had the opportunities that a lot of my people haven't to speak for my community you know so um it's even an idea we like all know, I, we all know that in Australia the most privileged people in society are Indigenous women. So <laughs> the, the two big boxes, the two boxes of privilege. <laughs> well, I like to give you an idea. Like I grew up in, um, so my parents, my mum, so my people are from North Queensland, um, the Atherton Tablelands, the Yidinji people, we're um, Dugalbarri Yidinji, and my mum grew up on country and. Um, she moved away with her family when she was young. Um, well, not young, but, like, you know, in her 20s or whatever. And she... Oh, sorry. Just wait for that to pass. <laughs> <laughs> um, she, she started a business with my dad when they were really young. And um, by the time I was... So, in, in Mount Isa, and then by the time I was about six, we moved to Brisbane... And the business was incredibly successful, very lucrative. And um, mum just had this whole thing about she wanted us to grow up in Brisbane so that we would have opportunities because she knew what her small town was like. And she then thought, well, if we're going to be raising them away from country, I don't want them to be in Mount Isa. That's weird (laughs) and it's still kind of got those attitudes. And so she wanted to raise us in Brisbane and um, she was very big on, on making sure that we were you know, well-educated and had um, lots of support around us and that. But because I think because the because the business was so successful, we never had to struggle for anything like when I was growing up and because mum's principles were always about us kids growing up with 
experiences and not things. We used to travel so that I have three older brothers and we used to go on a like massive holiday once a year from probably when I was about 10 or 11 onwards. And um, it means that like I've travelled the world, you know, and by the time I was 16, mum had then started a um, an aid organisation. So when we were travelling then, it was to go to these developing countries and um, like on the ground, like build water systems and irrigation and all that sort of stuff. So I had these, like, just an incredibly lucky upbringing with heaps of experiences a lot of people don't get. And I had the luxury of never having to ask for money, you know, like never having to struggle for money. And I realised that that's not the experience that a lot of my people have, I guess. Um, I also knew as well, like I've, I've always been quite lucky I've kind of had the gift of the gab and so I knew that that if I could educate myself properly I could talk to people um and there are so many people who are so good at things that don't have access to opportunities but I always did and so I always thought I wanted to to talk about it but I think there's also a part of me that maybe is so driven uh, I think an aspect of it is is guilt or shame as well because I didn't grow up on country and, um, I mean, I grew up in Brisbane and, and I feel like there's such a big gap in my own cultural knowledge that I want to sort of address the the bit before that, the, the, the guilt, the fear, the whatever it is and I, I, I recognise it, I think, in a way that, that others might not because I, I exist in both worlds and don't feel fully accepted in either if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So how did comedy uh, be the first thing that was the way of expressing that? What was it about, you know, expressing that message or those principles or those ideas? Why was comedy the home of it? What was it about humour that uh, made it the way to express those ideas? It wasn't. It wasn't my first choice. I went to uni and studied law and journalism. Um, I didn't finish it, but I had um, high hopes of getting involved in um, policy writing and, um, you know, I obviously wanted to work in the UN and all of those human rights, all of those things that everyone has. Uh, and it was a total accident that I did comedy. Um, I was travelling. I'd had a bit of a breakdown and I was like, fuck, I don't know what, I do. I don't know, don't know what I want to do with my life. And so I went backpacking alone and... Um, Again, one of those things where so anxious about everything, may as well just pull the safety safety net away and just see where I land. And um, I, it all culminated in this weird night where I got really drunk with a friend and she dared me to do stand-up and we just walked into a bar in Dublin and I was like, do you do stand-up? And he's like, no. And I went, do you have a microphone? And he's like, no, why? And I was like, no reason. <laughs> <laughs> and I just stood up on a chair in the corner of the room and went, oi, and made everyone listen to me and um, said, if I'm any good, buy us a drink. If I'm shit, I'll definitely know from your reactions. And I had drinks from most people in the bar. It was only a small bar. Like, you know, it's not like a two, <laughs> just this rammed bar. Um, but I had drinks there waiting for me and my friend was like, what the fuck? That was actually awesome. And I went, actually, this makes sense because I've, I'd always been funny, like I always loved to talk. I could tell a story like no one else, you know, like I knew I knew that those were things that I was good at. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to see what happens. And um, at first I actually, weirdly enough, I had this big thing that I would never talk about my heritage on stage. I was like, nobody gets to judge me based on that. I'm not a token. I'm never going to talk about it. I am more than that or whatever. Um, and then it was, uh, I lived in Scotland for two years and all I wanted to do was tell people about what it was like back home. And I didn't have the fear of repercussions that I had in Australia and everyone loved it. Like it, it just, it completely changed and, um, people were like, I went from, you know, kind of doing open mic to as soon as I did this stuff. And I'm talking like within a couple of months, as soon as I did first couple of stories about, you know, what it was like being Aboriginal in Australia, um, I started getting paid work and um, it just like very quickly started to change. And I went, hold on a second, people are 
actually learning from this and people would have long conversations with me and I went, yeah, that's this is the platform that I need to do that. Yeah. Right, so do you think that journey, and I mean, obviously this is just a hypothetical speculation, yeah. but I'm just interested in what you think about it, would have been different if you had started in Australia? Like, do you think it 100%. was that thing of being overseas that gave you that permission? Without a doubt in my mind. I never would have done it if I was here because, you know, it's it, again, it comes down to that, like, I think it's that um, self-consciousness or that lack of self-esteem or whatever, you know, that it's that idea of, like, um, oh, why would, uh, you know, just, I, I people always say, oh, yeah, my friends say I'm the funny one, you know, and it's like I, I always feel shame when I, like, I get, like, real cringe when I hear people say that, like, oh, my friends say I'm the funny one, so I'm going to do stand-up. I never wanted to be that person. Like, I didn't want to think that I was funny, you know, like it had to be because, and that night, I mean, there's so much more to that story of why I did it, but I was basically, I just watched Yes Man and so I had to say yes to everything if it wasn't going to kill me or get me arrested. Um, And so when she said, you have to do this, when she dared me, I did it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, okay, so I wouldn't have oh, done it in Australia. So, so yeah. many good things here, like so many good <laughs> things to talk about. Uh, all right, uh, where do I go first? I, normally I ask people on this show whether they have a life philosophy and we're already talking about you know, the idea of principles and life philosophies a lot already. So it's probably mm. best that I just ask you, is there a guiding principle to which you live your life? You're telling me about this period where you were saying yes to everything. Is there a principle at the moment that you have as a guiding principle, a philosophy of kind? Yeah, I'm. I, I think probably my biggest, my biggest thing is I was going to say, oh, I'm recently doing this, but uh, it's actually just I'm absolutely committed to, enthused by, and excited by growth. Just growth. I just love growth. I love seeing it in other people. I love focusing on growth. Um, everything is always about being better. In some, in some aspect, I'm always working on my mental health. I'm always working on, um, never my physical health, but we can talk about that later. Um, but, <laughs> but like, you know, like I, I want, I just love the, I love the concept. Like, you know, I sometimes just sit and go, man, isn't this the craziest thing? If, if, if you are born in, you know, Australia in a certain area with a certain whatever, and you have no physical or mental impairments. As a, as a human being, the spectrum is from you can be like Martin Luther King or you can be like Hitler, you can be like Oprah. Like there are – the spectrum of humanity is unbelievable to me. And so the idea of like I'm going to do everything I can to be on that really good side is just so exciting to me. It makes me – Every time I hit really dark periods in my life, I go, oh, but I want to, I want to always, like, I want to achieve this goodness, this just this being good in a way that changes the world. I'm very committed to that. I mean, being good in a way that changes the world is a huge ambition, a huge idea idea that somebody can actually change the world. So can, like, can an individual change the world do you believe that an individual can change the world 100 percent. there is no doubt in my mind and and i believe that they can because i think every single individual changes the world every single day you know it's like my dad and i often have this chat about like do you believe in fate and i always say no but what i do believe is that humanity will always assign reason and um and you know consequence to things whether you know in hindsight right so fate is true if you look at things in hindsight yeah. but I'm, no, I'm not sure whether Re- there's retro a yeah retroactively yes. fatalistic, right yes. you're just going this was always going to happen i can see now how this was always yeah. going to happen only now that i am looking back on it did yes. not see any of the signs along the way yeah yeah, yeah. yeah exactly exactly so like so but then thinking that way right what i what i always think is because then he posed to me, he said, okay, so what if there is no such thing as fate in the way that we sometimes think that everybody has a path, but what if it's more that the world has a path to push certain people to certain peaks to make big changes around the world? You know, like he said, think about it. 
Hitler was the most fucked up, like Stalin, they're the most fucked up people. But had we not had them as examples, what if X, Y, Z happened? You know, like, is it better to see the bad for what it is and learn from it? You know, like these kinds of questions and then see these really big examples of goodness and, you know, kind of that that idea was really exciting to me. And I thought, well, that's a cool way to look at it. Everybody's perspective on the world contributes enough to change somebody else's, you know, like everybody contributes and we're all like a wave. And if we're like a wave and we all have to push one thing forward, then there is some idea that some aspects of that wave are going to stand out more and lead the rest of that wave. If that makes, I mean, I don't know why I used that weird metaphor, but like, um, I believe I, that. No, but I, yeah. I like this and its association with what you said, which is growth, because I think that, you know, what you were maybe like, and tell me if I'm wrong, because mm. I'm always happy to be told that I'm wrong as well if I've <laughs> misinterpreted it. But the idea of focusing on growth, you know, you said about you, you know, watching YouTube, that idea of like, I'm going to learn how to do something. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that thing of going, I need to be this perfect person. I need to yeah. achieve this perfect result. But I can do something here to make me smarter. I can make a yeah. choice here to make me more compassionate. I can do yeah. something for somebody else that will help them do something and then perhaps they pass that on to something else. And yes. this idea of we give people and the world the capacity to grow and be better, give something rather than take something away. You want to do something on behalf of your people. You want to speak on behalf of your people. You want to make the world grow. You want to learn how to do new things yourself. You have a growth mindset yourself. Like, you know, you know, you're not, it's not just stand-up comedy now. It's going to be acting. It's going to be speaking. It's going to be doing talks. You're going to find other ways to get that message out there into the world. So before we get to the specifics of that, I, I think maybe what I want to ask you is a more general question because do you believe... Well, I guess the big question is, where do you think the world is? Is the world you know, in an okay place? I, like it feels to me sometimes that I despair for where, you know, humanity is and, you know, where we are in our evolution of humanity. And I worry that that perhaps, you know, the horse has already bolted, you know, we're trying to shut the gate and maybe, I don't know. Like, are you going to reassure me and say that, you know, there is hope? Well, don't you think, um, he, like, kind of here's how I look at it, is, like, in so many ways we're in the most peaceful time we've ever been in, right? And I think it's it's this is possibly one of those things where, and I, I mean, I don't know, but I kind of think to myself sometimes, you know how sometimes we don't know what we don't know? Do you think we're just at a place where maybe we know what we don't know and that's why it feels like there's so much despair? <laughs> like, have we actually just reached a certain level of of um, enlightenment that we're now wishing we were at a different level? Like, do you know what I mean? I absolutely know what you mean. I think that's an incredible insight. Yes, we're smart enough to know what we don't know but not smart enough to know what we need to know. Yeah, exactly. And I, But I also, I also think, though, that, like... Because I, I often, um, I used to have this real um, thing, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, uh, like a bug, I used to have this real issue with, I always thought, so when I was in my late teens, I used to get really annoyed because I think that we always um, associate cynicism with intelligence. Like, oh, those people who know how fucked up it is must be the smart ones. Um, and that always bugged me because I think that that is such a, a, a cop out and such a crock of shit that lets people never strive for any goodness. It lets people just go, I'm doing the bare minimum. And I think that's why we adopted it. And it's like, I, I always have this chat with my dad where he goes, you're such an idealist. And I'm like, yes. And you should be encouraging that. Like if there's one thing that I want to encourage when I have children, it's for them to be idealistic because who gives a fuck if you get disappointed, if you're trying, like if you're moving in that direction, isn't that better than going, well, there's no point, there's no hope and I won't change because if everybody thinks that, nothing ever will change, you know? So, yes, I think there's hope, but I think that we need to have a big... We need to keep on being reminded that there's hope or feel empowered, otherwise there won't actually be hope. I don't know. 
I'm just I'm just an eternal optimist, I think. I love that though, because eternal optimism and I think that that's probably my natural setting too. Yeah. And that that and then that facts try to like make you cynical, yeah. right? I think in general I am optimistic. I think that human beings are amazing and yeah. can achieve amazing things and I see all the amazing things that we constantly achieve and I really do hope that our better instincts outweigh our worse instincts and yeah. we do have the possibility for going forward. But of course I also agree with what you say because sometimes when you say that you sound like a naive idiot. Exactly. Like it sounds exactly. like you haven't been watching the news and seeing what's going on. But I th- surely surely all comedians or all people who speak about the bad shit in the world are optimists. You wouldn't fucking talk about it unless you thought and hoped it could change. Like, that's why I think that that's why I am quite um, sardonic on stage and sarcastic and quite cynical, I guess, is because I don't think that it's forever. Like, you make fun of it now because you go, well, it's going to change or look at what we do and you have to believe that the audience have enough has enough self-awareness and insight to see themselves in what you're saying and hope that what you're saying makes a slight change, right? I mean, I think you are right. <laughs> you're blowing my mind a bit here. This is like, it's Monday morning when we're recording this and you've come out on fire. I'm, I'm loving every bit of this. This is, this is some good stuff, Steph. I'm right into it. <laughs> so whatever course you're selling, I'm signing up. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to start a cult. <laughs> Um, okay, so I, I want to talk about the, the aspect of my people. And when yeah. you say my people, I imagine that there is a broader context of that because, like, in that, you know, the people who come to your shows, the people who are following your work, it's not as if they are all one type of people. But I think when you say my people, you you mean, you know, historically, you know, the First Nations people yes. of Australia. Yeah. Yes. Aboriginal Australia. So talk to me about that. Aboriginal yes. Australia. But I'm also shit scared because... Like, I would like to do things for my people. However, there is a really difficult, it's so nuanced and it's so, there are so many issues in a, in terms of, like, um, internalised oppression and, you know, so many nuances and so many differences that I would love to speak on behalf of my people, but I also hate the idea of speaking on behalf of my people because mm. there's no such thing. And, um, and I... Like, I, I, I despise tokenism, but I used to be managed by, like, for a short amount of time, I was working with Sean Chilbra's wife, um, Jodie, and she is amazing. And she said to me once, tokenism is only tokenism until it just isn't anymore. And I was like, I know that's a really simple thing to say, but it completely changed my mind. I went, that's true. Just by existing in that position, you represent something you know um and yeah. so in that way i go the token the token unfortunately is often the first person through the door yes yes but but without them that yeah they, they need to get through the door and then wedge the door open a little for everybody exactly. else to sneak in the exactly back. and it's like it's like that idea of like um you know if there's no representation then some representation is better than no representation even if you know like it, and it's really fucked up and it fucks with my head but like at the same time, I totally get. I I get that sentiment. I go, okay, well, if I have to be the token, then I have to be okay with being a token. Because my tokenism means that somebody else won't be a token in the future, or something. And I think probably you, observing you, like. I think there's a difference between say say you went and watched the lineup of yeah stand up comedy. I'll just put in stand up comedy frames yeah. because that's the easiest thing for us to talk yeah. about. But you go to a stand up comedy night and you know there's ten people on and you go oh I'm the I'm the indigenous person yeah. like I'm the Aboriginal person right I'm the token act that's on this yeah you're only a token to get through the door yes you don't have to be a token on the lineup yes you know exactly. Exactly, and also, well, do you know what the stats are? Sorry, I lost you for a second there, Will. Um, the stats are something unbelievable, like 60% of Australians have never met an Aboriginal person or had a conversation with an Aboriginal person. Like, that's unreal to me, right? So the idea that that's where we're starting from, it's like even if it gets you through the door, well, at least now there's people who are watching who are getting an insight that they otherwise wouldn't have had 
And so in that way, that tokenism is like almost a blessing. Do you know what I mean? And so that's, yeah, I just go, fuck, I, I need to be in that position. And then hopefully what I'm doing behind the scenes is enough to really empower a community that I've built within my community and that that will be enough. And then, you know, so for example, so um, Kevin Crepinuri is like my main mentor. He's just, he's one of the most beautiful people in the world. Like, well, I don't know if you know him well, but his life story is fucking unbelievable. He is the most inspirational man. Like where he has come from to where he is, the way he views the world, his strength as a man, like he's just unreal. And um, when I first started, so he was the host when I won Deadly Funny in 2014, which was basically what gave me my start. And when I actually started doing it, not just once a year, um, but actually started gigging properly, he, um, when I came back from Scotland, he started giving me gigs and was, was helping me and you know, was always on the other end of a call for me if I needed it and all that sort of thing. And I used to get really guilty because he'd do things like he'd do a gig and he would not pay himself. He'd just give me his pay plus my pay because he knew that I was struggling and living out of my car, right? Or like, you know, crashing at mum's house and then travelling in my car and whatever. Um, and I used to feel so bad and like, oh, my God, what an amazing man. And I said to him, like, how can I ever repay you for this? And he said, oh, I don't, I don't expect repayment. He said, this is how it works in our industry. He goes... There, there's fuck all blackfellas in here, right? So what we do is we open the door for you and it's up to you whether you walk through. The only thing that I ever need from you, Steph, is to open that door for somebody else and show them that they can come through. And so it's been a huge thing right from the very, very beginning that any time that I see another blackfella that I reckon has a lot of potential or whatever is like I'll do the same sort of thing. Get them on a lineup, give them my pay, give them an opportunity, like, you know, pay for their flights, whatever it is to make sure that they get opportunities and then just tell them you need to do the same for somebody else. You know, like that, that kind of mentoring through, like down the line, sort of talking about the shit that we can't talk about with other comedians. Because a, a big thing that, that we can't talk about to the mainstream is the fear of community backlash, the fear of um, what it means as far as, you know, like all the, the responsibility that comes with any word that you say, whether you want it to or not, becomes a representation of your people. The fear of that is almost, like, it stops people. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it is a huge thing that stops people from stepping into this world. And it's a massive part of the mentoring process that I find is that that's what you spend most of your time talking about is... If you believe it's funny, if it's worth saying, say it. What if the community says this? Oh, they absolutely will. And it will cut you to the like to the core. So you need to be you need to be motivated by the best of intentions for your people. Otherwise, there's no point in you doing this. It's such a huge responsibility to take to the table. It is. Right? Yeah. Because because firstly, as you said, like there is no such thing as, you know, one version of what your people are exactly that, that was never the case yeah there was always you know very different communities and tribes of different people speaking different languages and having yeah. different customs so exactly it was never one people to start with they yeah. have been incredibly disenfranchised by particularly white australia you know mm. let's be completely honest about what we're talking about mm. and most of the time i imagine well i'll put I'll ask you your question, but I'll put it on me first. Yeah. I remember a couple of years ago, I had a particularly good routine, I will say, and like because I'd, I'd, I'd worked on it for so long to try to get it right. Yeah. And it was about, it combined what had happened to Adam Goods, the footballer, the racial vilification of him, with a whole routine about changing the date of Australia Day. And it was something that I was incredibly proud of as a yeah. piece. And I probably worked on it harder than any other piece that I'd ever worked on because I wanted to make sure that I was not getting anything wrong, right? Like yeah. I wasn't saying anything that was... But as somebody later said to me, they said, yeah, but how many, like, black fellas did you do it in front of? <laughs> because the majority of people who come and see my shows are still, you know, white or whitish 
you know, yeah. Australians. So yeah. I am a white guy having a white guy's take. I think, you know, a good take, but a white guy's take and then saying it to other, you know, whiteish people. You know, yeah. the people that I'm talking about aren't actually, there's no real skin in the game. But that is not your scenario. Like you are talking, yeah. you know, talking about your own individual experience yeah. that then becomes you representing your community exactly. as well. It becomes politicised. And it's not in predominant, I imagine, not in predominantly Aboriginal audiences. No, it's right? not. Yeah. No. Well, this is so like... So that must be so tricky. It is It is really tricky because, like, so, you know, there's a... Andy Saunders and I often have this conversation about it's so bizarre how open Australia is to hearing anybody who isn't Aboriginal talking about the Aboriginal struggle in Australia. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> They fucking love it. You know what I mean? They're oh, like people love my stuff. Yeah. Twenty minutes of it. Yeah, Couldn't get like, enough of it. They're like, oh, it's so true. It's so true. Like, you know, um, when when we have British comedians get up on the gala and they go, mm. "Wow, you really treat your black people badly," and everyone's like, "Oh, we do." But <laughs> as soon as you're a black person saying you treat us pretty badly, people are like, "Fuck you! Yeah. How dare yeah. you!" You know, like... Yeah, what are you complaining about? Yeah, exactly. Get over it. It happened 200 years ago. Yeah. Like, and it becomes this whole thing, um, which I always find quite funny and I keep on trying to write a routine about it, but I'm just too scared. But, like, um, yeah, I, I look, I actually, for the first time, had my my big... The one thing that I was scared of, which was backlash from community, it happened around the same time that lockdown started last year. And it rocked my entire fucking world. And I think it was probably a big part of also why I took a step back from comedy, from stand-up. Um, because there is nothing worse than what your intentions... Like, you know, my intentions are always to lift my people up. And then having people say, this has done the opposite. You've given, you know, white Australia uh, permission to do this one thing that... I was it was the opposite of what I was trying to do. Like I so used to, I, I used to work. I don't, I don't. Yeah, I don't know how much you want to go into it. I have some awareness of what it is that you're talking about, and I know yeah. sometimes you're like, I don't want to get myself into to yeah. more hot water than I already have. Oh, so I'm open. We about can it. speak about it as much or as little as you yeah. want about the details, but it was about using. Was it the A word? It was. Is that yes. What it was yes. right. Yes. Yeah. The abbreviated A word. We all yes. know what you're talking about, right? Yes. And, and I so, used the word. Yes. Like, how, how did you use it? Well, sarcastically, the entire point, it's all irony. It's all, it was supposed to be, I guess, like a holding up a mirror to people and kind of saying, this is the sort of shit that you say, you know, like you're not, you are, you're, you're bullshit, you know, like it's kind of this idea of like, stop trying to be woke and like recognize you're perpetuating this shit. The problem is, it's like when, when black people say the N-word, right, people go, well, they say it. That, no, that's not what I'm trying to do. Like, that's even even the C-word, I've used the C-word quite a bit. Again, in that way to try and take something back or to not take something back but to make a really serious point about something. And it's so hard to nail that tone because my intentions are always pure but the problem with problem with something like that is that and and people will have really differing opinions on it but there are a lot of people who believe language matters and what like words matter and the intention doesn't matter if the word has this reaction you know it's like that intention versus result kind of argument um and I mean a lot of people totally understood it and were like totally on board but there was a a section of my community that was really hurt by the fact that I would do that in the position that I was in and it cut me to my core because I had to evaluate what my principles were, how, like could I have foreseen that? If I could have, why didn't I do more? And, you know, when, when, you, when you're a black fella doing edgy material, well, I hate the word edgy, but, like, you know, I've got a, I've got a joke, for example, that where I say, you know, um, representation of Aboriginal people is so sorely lacking. So just thank fuck we have so much in the prison system. Like that's a fucked joke, you know what I mean? Like that's a fucking like it's really on the line. 
um, it's really fucking on the line. And I'm happy to do that sort of shit because most people know exactly what the point of that joke is. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as you yeah. use... The point, the point of the yeah. joke isn't that it, Aboriginal people are inherently criminal. The point is that they're inherently demonised by our correction system. Exactly. The, you know. Exactly. Yeah, like, but if you start to explain all that, it does take away some of the punchiness of the joke. Exactly. Well, exactly. And it's like, that, that's what's so hard. And if language matters, then I shouldn't be okay with using a word that has been used against us for a really long time. And, you know, I had but family la- call language, me up I would it. argue, and I look, it's not my place to argue mm. the pros and cons of those words and how they affect those communities. Mm. But some of it surely has to do with the person who's saying it. And this is where it gets incredibly tricky. Yeah. Because there are some comedians who, if they came out on stage knowing what I know about them and their act and their world perspective and they made that joke, I would consider it to be an incredibly racist joke. That joke could be told by a racist in a racist way. Yes, of course. Coming from you, it Mm. doesn't – that isn't where the joke goes. It immediately takes you to – the place that the joke is meant to. But yes. this is what's so tricky about jokes. Exactly. Exactly. And then so it makes you, like, the the biggest thing is that intention thing. And, um, and I think if my intentions aren't matching up with their results, then I, I, I think really what I'm trying to do is just I just need to take some time off to come back and write some fucking solid gold mm. that I feel proud enough of and don't have fear in writing. And I think I, I'm also, I, I think, you know, lockdown, when the Black Lives Matter stuff happened as well, I just got so fucking over all this bullshit because I was like, this is awful. And then I saw, like, people, I had this, I got so angry because there was a girl who I remember, you know, casually dropping that A word around at school and talking about how, oh, they always get free shit from the government and stuff. And then she was posting about Black Lives Matter and was saying, death's in custody. And I was like... Is this a trend to you? Do you give a fuck? Do you realise, like, your actions as a person every day contribute to this shit? Do you think that writing something on Facebook now is going to change it? And I got so angry. I was like, fuck this. I'm not making these people laugh. Like, I can't deliver the way that I want to, which is full of love, because I'm just feeling angry. Like, I, you know, even though I'm being, you know, saying shit that's quite on the on the line or whatever, I always deliver it with a, a lot of warmth. Well, I can't give that warmth anymore because I'm fucking angry. Because if you don't fucking listen to me, if you're not reading the intention that I'm giving, and if you don't get it, then what the fuck am I doing? So I've just taken some time off, really. Well, like, I'm, I'm writing a book as well, which I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about that, but fuck it, whatever. Um, I'm writing a book and it's a fiction and it's, you know, I guess about these kinds of issues and, um, yeah, like, there's just... I think it's really important if I want to make the change that I make. I have to make sure that I realign with my original principles, intentions, get my profile to a point where people will listen and where I can fucking talk without fear and without anger. And that's fucking hard. Okay, so so many things. God, mm. This is a good chat. I'm enjoying <laughs> this so much. You're the best. So uh, I think starting with anger is a great place to start. In fact, I there's a bit of me that's always suspicious when any joke doesn't start with anger. Mm. I think then what you it's important not to then take that anger necessarily onto stage. The way yes. you present something doesn't need to match where it has started. But yes. it doesn't start with a bit of anger. Even if it's just anger at the bus coming at the wrong time. Yes. Jokes should really start with a bit of, you know, the grit that makes the totally you know, the agree. pearl, right? Yeah. It, then sometimes people don't do enough of a good job. Sometimes you're just like, oh, no, I'm still just angry about this. Yeah, I haven't yeah, turned yeah. it into a joke yet. I haven't made it fun. I haven't done my job properly. Yeah. It feels to me that the anger thing is a beautiful part of this process. Keep yes. the anger. Lean into the anger. Like beautiful things in your comedy and your work are going to grow out of that anger. It's just then about finding comedic or other ways to express that anger that exactly. is just pure anger but the other thing is what i'm hearing from you is that you're someone who likes to grow you're someone who likes to challenge yourself to examine things to go how could i have done this better and you said at the start exactly what had happened you were doing the same material that you'd been doing for a couple of years because you hadn't had time to step back and write new material but guess what you hadn't been doing in those two years standing still as a human being exactly. in the way that you think about things, in the way that you engage with the world and the world hadn't stayed. So you've just, 
you've your material, what you were saying wasn't matching the intellectual capacity that you now have to be able to say things. And yes, that's, that's where true. the mismatch is. That's so true. That's exactly right, which is why, like, because I don't, I don't think I'll, like, I don't think this is a forever thing. It's not even something that I've really said publicly that I've kind of stepped away from, from comedy because I haven't really, but I, like, I well, it's myself. It's been easy to do it because comedy exactly. stepped away from all of us. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I've just been like, thank fuck, because I need, I just, I know that you're, you're so right because I've, I've actually been saying a lot, like, this is the first time I've allowed myself to be angry, number one. Like, I, I've never been an angry person it's one of my biggest fears I've grown up around a lot of angry people and it's it's something that I've literally feared all my life and this is the first time I've ever gone this is the fucking best shit like this anger is making me work hard in a very different direction because I know that it's going to loop back so like I that's it's actually a really good a good thing but I think you're right like right now I'm just trying to build some experiences and some stories so that I can come back with material that is just fucking bulletproof and that takes me to the place that I, I need to be taken to. And I, I think hopefully the things that I'm working on will also help me build a profile in a different way that means people won't see me, will maybe see me a little bit more multifaceted so that when I talk about certain things, there's a very different understanding or intention or, or even just perception of them. Yeah. Okay. So look, we um, I'm aware that we've only you know sort of got ten more minutes, but I'm, I've got a whole bunch of other questions that I still really want to ask you. So yeah. one that you you actually put a flag in. You said that we should come back to it. You said uh, your physical health. How is your physical health? I'm somebody who, you know, particularly during this time, this time of lockdown, I, I just have really like been unkind to myself physically. There's, yeah. I was not one of those people who took this opportunity to. <laughs> to get my health in order in any way. In fact, I've leaned into all my worst impulses during this time and probably giving myself permission often just to go, you know what, if you need to eat cake for breakfast, you need to eat cake for breakfast. Yeah, fucking nice. Uh, So where are you at with your physical health? Um, Fucked, so fucked, man. (laughs) I, yeah, as soon as I stopped, I was, it was weird. I was just like um, falling asleep in the middle of conversations scared to drive because I'd just be falling asleep everywhere. Like, it was really weird and I kind of, you know, like hardcore adrenal fatigue, I guess. And as soon as my brain knew that that was off, I just was realised how burnt out I was and stuff. But I actually had a look at what I'd been doing and, my God, I've picked up some fucked habits from touring. So, like, I've always... Well, I haven't always been overweight, but I've been overweight for as long as I've been doing comedy. And... um that was fine when I was just performing, but then touring or being in front of other people around lunchtime and, like, food times, really self-conscious about eating. And so I stopped eating on tour and would just drink iced coffee, just which is the worst thing you can drink. It's just full of sugar <laughs> and caffeine. Um, but it felt better for me somewhere to be doing that than to eat in front of other people because of this self-consciousness. I'm, I'm like, like I, I obsess about my weight and my looks and stuff like that, which is so fucked. I'm really trying to work on that at the moment. Um, and, uh, and then I'd, you know, eat shit when I came home late after a gig or whatever. Um, well, anyway, that's actually adopted itself over, you know, years. And uh, I realised... Like, when I was in lockdown, I was like, I haven't eaten for, like, three days. And then I'd eat and just binge, just absolutely binge, but, like, you know, in private and secret. And I went, oh, fuck, this is a thing. And, um, yeah, I realised I've got, a like, an eating disorder. So I, was, I spoke to, like, a, my doctor about it and they said, well, this is, you know, like, binge eating disorder or whatever. And I had to recognise, yep, that's what it is. Plus I'm really addicted to these iced coffees and the sugar and um, this, like instantaneous high and I realised I had anemia and um, I had sleep apnea and, like, all of these things. I just haven't been sleeping properly. and uh, You know, I had to go, oh, my God, my physical health is actually really poor um, and a lot of it has to do with my weight and a lot of my weight issues have to do with how I feel about myself, blah, blah, blah. So it's been this this big thing and I've actually been working with a, um, a food psychologist who specialises in this stuff and it's been really enlightening because it's so connected to um, 
feelings of self-worth and self-love and all those sorts of things and, you know, tiny things from when you're little that you, how you attach to certain things, your attachment to things and, you know, aspects of your, your childhood that you are, oh, that's not really a big deal, but it rocks your feelings of attachment and you attach to other things and you know I've come from a family of of like they all run marathons and they're all fit and healthy and beautiful like super attractive and I've never been able to be like that I've always had this real real issue and lack of control over food and it's it's so weird as well because I'm a, I'm a really I'm a person to extremes and um when I've lost weight in the past as soon as I start I become obsessed and I will starve myself and I will you know, overexert myself and it will last for a certain amount of time until I have a breakdown and then stop and then it goes back to exactly how it was. And um, when I realised all of these things, I was like, I have no idea. Like, this is this is the physical, you know, culmination of all of my fears and attitudes and stuff. So, weirdly enough, um, I Googled... Um, so I've been, doing, I've been doing all this stuff, but I'm too busy. It becomes a... It be, it's really easy to drop it as a priority, especially because it makes me feel so vulnerable and scared, right? Um, so then I Googled fat camp for adults <laughs> and I found this place um, and it's a retreat and it's like three weeks without your phone, no smoking, like I'm a heavy smoker, um, no smoking, uh, no phone. Well, you, you know, at night you can have your phone. There's like dietitians, trainers physios, psychs, whatever. I feel like a fucking, like, American, like, Hollywood star because it's so fucking expensive, but I've booked in. I'm going in. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going in on the 1st of Feb. I'm going to spend three weeks in this, like, essentially fucking food rehab and just it's all about retraining and teaching yourself how to have a normal relationship with food. Um I'm shit scared, but I'm super excited. And I've just given myself permission to not obsess about things either way because I'll do that. I'll obsess and then I'll binge anyway. So it doesn't matter what my attitude is. I'm struggling to not put on weight until I've dealt with the underlying issues. So I'm going to this retreat on the 1st of February. So there you go. Man, like we don't have enough time to get into everything I want to get into today. I want to finish up with just a few quick things. Yeah. This this episode's coming out in January and obviously January in Australia, you know, Mm -hmm. we go through our lovely little dance that we like to have every year around uh, January the 26th. Yeah. Thoughts? (laughs) Um, Fucking change the date, man. It's, It's just so fucked. Like we just need leadership. Like as in this isn't about... This shouldn't be about people talking on on Facebook. Somebody needs to make the decision to just change it. And if our leadership hasn't got the leadership qualities to push for a better future, then they can go fuck themselves. <laughs> yep, good, good succinct answer. Hundred <laughs> percent. Well, well said. <laughs> endorsed, endorsed by Will Anderson. <laughs> um, uh, what do you think happens when we die? I, I, wow, I fucking love that question. Um, I think our energy turns into something else. I think we just, regardless of whether that's a spirit or not, energy can't be made or destroyed. And when we get buried in the ground and we feed back into the earth, we become something else. So I just think we transform our energy becomes something else and that's the simplest answer I can give if you could have any skill in the world you don't have to watch your YouTube videos to develop <laughs> this skill you just magic wand style I can give you any skill in the world what would that skill be sing I'd be I'd love to be able to sing really well what sort of singing would you sing if you were um just pop singing like I, I love singing I, I sing all the time but I'm not very good I'm not terrible I'm just not very good I think a really nice voice is one of the biggest gifts in the world. Uh, final question. This has been brilliant, by the way. Let's plug what we can plug. What can we plug at the moment? There'll be more things coming next year. Just watch out for those. But people can what? Go to your website or your socials. Where's oh, the best place for them to fuck, find Fuck, everything's embargoed at the moment, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Okay. So just jump on my socials. All I can socials. do is just watch out. Yes. Just yeah. watch out for yes. stuff to come. I'll be right? blazing on your screens in lots of different ways. 
So watch yeah, out. Cool. Yeah. That's good. That's fine. I'm, we're happy with that. Watch cool. out. This is good. This is a nice little <laughs> put a pin in it. Yeah. You heard, you heard Steph here talking about all this stuff before as a thing. At the end of the year when she's a new Kate Blanchett or whatever, <laughs> you'll know that it all started here and you could have known about it. Uh, final question. I have a time machine and I can take you to any point in the future, any point in history, any point in your own life. It doesn't really matter. Um, you could advise yourself. You could change something. You could observe something. You can ignore yourself completely, by the way. You can just go and visit somewhere in history or in the future if you want to. But what would you like to do? Um, I think I'd like to meet my nan. I never met her. I, I just want to, I just want to, I think I just want to have a conversation with her. That's it. What would you like to say to her, do you think? I just want to... I just, I just want to speak to her in a really loving way and show her that I, that I feel for her. She's had, she had a tough life and I think that's why she was tough on my mum and I think that's why my mum grew up with so much internalised oppression about herself and I think that's why we struggle to learn culture. It's, it's a very multifaceted thing, but I, I want to tell her that um, I see her struggle and that I'm grateful. Yeah. I just want to give her love. I just want to show her love. Well, I'm incredibly grateful that you took this uh, call from me, Steph. This has been so much fun. I have loved it. I oh, appreciate you. you greatly. I'm very excited to see what... Uh, happens with your next oh all thanks man it's been so fucking projects. nice hey it's been really fucking cool thank you so much yeah, i told my friend right. i was thank gonna you. do this she was like oh, yeah? will anderson i just told my house man i was like oh, i've got this thing <laughs> oh you're fucking serious you're so cool i can't believe how famous you are <laughs> uh thanks mate i appreciate it no worries at all